I can't wait till we get to the picks now because I you just added one for me. But I'm not, I really want to talk about <laughs> oh, it now, but okay. I won't. And I'm going to save it. I'm going to save it. I'm going to save it. So, hey, everybody, welcome to episode 127 of the More Than Just Code podcast. I'm Tim Mitra, and I am in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined by Jaime Lopez in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And I'm also joined by Tammy Coron down in West Tennessee. Hey. Alrighty. So, actually, I did have some follow-up from Kim Alberg, but, but he said something to the effect of he moved to America. So, he works up in Seattle near you, actually. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Oh, uh, that's right. I did see. So what do you guys think of that little... What do you think about the little little vignettes of uh, what the iPhone meant to people? What do you think about that section? I thought it was pretty cool. It was nice to see what everybody's different perspectives were. Right. I enjoyed it. Did you? I did. I was, you know, I said to you yesterday that I tried to listen to the show and then I got sidetracked and mm. I actually did go back right. right after our conversation last night and I did listen to it and I heard um, you started with Aaron Douglas, I believe, right? That was the first one you put up. Yeah. And it was really yep. touching, I mean, to listen to the stories. And then I I don't recall all of the names of all the people that left those little snippets. But I meant to reach out to you and say, Tim, you did a really good job editing that stuff in. And it, it's, it flowed really well. And it kind of was mm-hmm, a little, mm-hmm. um, like I said, it was touching, you know, to hear all those stories. Yeah, it's interesting to see what, what people take away from Because, I mean, it's obviously been something that's affected our lives, or the three of us, right? Um, being developers and that kind of stuff. But just even just using the phone, I mean, I was happy to use the phone right from the get-go, you know, as soon as as soon as soon Apple had a phone. Um, and I didn't know what it was going to be, but it was interesting to hear what, you know, George Stromalopoulos said about, for him, the iPod was the big thing because he's, he's into music, right? And that's his business. And Aaron is, you know, he's an engineer on, on WordPress. And so that kind of, you know, being able to write the WordPress app for iOS for him is a big thing, right? Um, I loved Rich's story at the end there about putting his, having to keep his money and his change in the other pocket, you know. That's kind of what this technology has done. It's disrupted our little lives in a lot of different ways, right? In good ways, though. In yeah, bad ways, yeah. too, though. Let's not, let's not kid ourselves. <laughs> you know, it's aggravating <laughs> yeah. when you go out to dinner or anywhere, really, and you, you can see two people clearly together, but not, you know, and that's right, frustrating right. to see. Yeah, but you're right. It it it, it does get to, does can can be disruptive with people's lives and stuff like that. And sometimes the kids spend too much time in front of uh, the square devices, as my friend calls them. So she restricts the amount of square time people have, right? So we have some follow-up items here. Yeah, so I, I think we've talked about Apple and their possible intention of, of getting into television production. And I think it's come out quite a bit lately about um, Apple um, trying to take on uh, some of the, I guess, some of the, the business that Netflix and Spotify are involved in um, with some more substantial rumors about, or rumors, I guess, a story about um Apple getting into TV production. Did you guys have a look at these two links? I just started to look at the, uh, the obviously the this one here, Mac rumors and the Apple TV music. Yeah, so uh, Jim Iovine is the I, I, that's how I pronounce his name. Um, yeah, he's the uh, executive, I guess, at Apple. It's in charge of Apple Music, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not going to lie. The only and, reason I clicked on that link originally is because I I misread it as Johnny Ive, so I was a little disappointed. <laughs> I was a little disappointed when I went in there. <laughs> like, so oh, yeah. I, 
I, I was there at WWDC in 2015 that's when, right, when yeah. Mr. Iovine, which I think you got it correct. I think that's how I remember him saying his name, um, was there giving the really weird, awkward pitch for Apple Music. So it is branded mm-hmm. in my brain. Um, but I did see I, not these two particular links that you have here, but I saw, I think, similar ones about how they're trying to make Apple Music more competitive. Uh, not so much in like a pure numbers basis, but like adding more to like what it is, right? So adding um, like some sort of TV sort of uh, thing to it. And as you have here in the other link about how they are trying to do the sort of the Netflix model where you you generate your own content that's exclusive to your platform and, and that makes your platform more, um, you know, more appealing, right? Like, because there's plenty of competitors out there for, for plenty of these things and uh, everybody needs to have the, the same basic sort of content. But when you're trying to choose like, well, who am I going to give my $10 a month to this year? I, I think having those exclusives has been pretty important for these folks. Yeah, it's interesting to see that that uh, and and I don't know that Netflix and Spotify necessarily make all that much money from it. So it's kind of strange uh to to sort of be chasing that, but it seems to be like everybody's got like now that I have a smart TV, I'm finding, you know, now I'm using Netflix a lot more because it's it's right there on the TV, but uh, Amazon's got I you know signed up for the Prime thing uh a couple of weeks ago and I've been trying to watch some of that but the content isn't quite there yet with Amazon. Um and who else has it? Hulu. Well, you guys have Hulu, right? Does Hulu have exclusive stuff? In the oh, States, yeah. Or? You know, it's funny you mentioned that because um, my husband and I were just talking about Hulu and Netflix. They're all starting to come out with original content, and whether it be movies right, or right. series, they're all doing it. And he said he made the very poignant comment that they're not just streaming services anymore; they're networks. They got their own stuff. Exactly. I think it'll be interesting to see how this sort of plays out because like with regards to what Apple brings to the table, because so far there are kind of like two different extremes for how you do this sort of building a network sort of thing with your original content. In my mind, it kind of comes down to you're either Netflix or your HBO where HBO has sort right, of right. limited, limited data, you know, cause they're going through the intermediaries. Yes, they do have their own, streaming service now but when they started things like boardwalk empire and game of thrones and so on and so forth like they didn't have it in that information so i think they were really heavily dependent on really having good taste good judgment as to what would be um you know good projects to to bring on board and netflix had tons and tons of data that it can mine in myriad different ways to say well what if we combine this and this? What if it's this actor with this director or this producer with these writers and can use that sort of data-driven approach to bring things forth, right? Things that they feel will be like reasonably confident about that will be successful. I'm not sure where Apple sort of fits into it, right? I think since they don't have that data, like uh, maybe to some extent through iTunes, but purchasing is not the same as sort of all-you-can-eat streaming. I feel like they'll have to fall closer to being on the HBO side where hopefully they'll have hired really talented people that have good taste and can pick out the winners. It's kind of strange in this model. Like I've, I've followed some of the broadcast networks specifically, you know, the ones here in Canada. And I, I know that when 
they there's a sort of uh, conference thing that they go down to in LA, if I'm not mistaken, where shows are pitched to them. You know, like there may be a pilot or maybe like maybe even like a bunch of episodes, and they buy those shows. And that's like here in Canada, we get we have a couple of you know we have our main main networks, and then we have some smaller um, novelty channels. Like you know we have. Um, uh, FX and and uh, we have a thing called Show not Showtime but we have a Showcase I think it's called here but you know how you have Showtime down there and they have some stuff and what's the what's the one that CW is that the network that Supergirl is on yes CW right yeah mm-hmm. so so you guys get it on on CW we get it up here on on Showcase or Bravo or some other similar type of thing so it's kind of like the, these guys go down to LA. They 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 bid whatever they bid for the shows, and then they get the exclusive right to show it up here. And, and I kind of wonder if that is a similar model that happens in what we see as Netflix. And I mean, like, did game was Game of Thrones actually produced by HBO initially, or was it something that was pitched and then HBO picked it up? You know, kind of thing. Or same with Westworld and that kind of stuff, right? Um, it's interesting. I, I would have to talk to a TV insider to sort of get that that uh, that inside story, right? But um, Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting to see how this is going to play out, and I don't know how. I, you know, again, coming back to what I was saying earlier about the iPhone, I didn't understand how Apple was going to play an iPhone into the market. Right, I'm not sure how Apple would play uh, their own content into this thing, kind of thing. And I'm, and I'm a little, I find it a bit fragmented that um, you know I can't watch certain shows because I don't have access to that particular channel network, or I don't want to, you know, I don't want to sign up for it. Um, like we're still, Carol and I still use cable. I mean, I don't know if you guys have cable anymore. I think Tammy doesn't, right? No, I do not. But, uh, do you, do you, Jaime? Do you have, I do. do. And, and, and the last sort of tripwire holding me up is, um, live sports. So that's getting a little better with, with, you know, ESPN is starting its own, you know, cable cutter, cord cutter sort of service. But I, I need to be certain that all of the teams that I follow and, and, and special event type stuff too. Uh, so not just like the big four, big five, um, sports, but also things like the Olympics, um, you know, the world cup. I need to make sure that I have access to that sort of stuff. And right now cable is still the absolute best way of, of ensuring that you do have at least, you know, real time access to it. Yeah, it's interesting. We have a we have a side story. I didn't put a post on here, but maybe I'll add it to the show notes. But uh, it's just a story that's come up recently, and that is that services like Netflix in Canada don't aren't obligated to pay to charge um, tax. You know, when they sell their product, right? So you pay like nine or ten dollars, whatever it is, for Netflix, um, but there's no uh, what we call HST or, or harmonized sales tax, right? Um, that's like I think it's thirteen percent in Ontario. So the government has stepped up and said, well, and because right now the way it's regulated up here is because it's a downloaded content and it's not necessarily something you're physically buying and, in, in, you know, like, or being handed over. It's data, basically, right? Um, it's been excluded from having uh, that tax charge. And so now all of a sudden there, there's a question of whether we'll be paying tax on top of Netflix, right? Which is kind of an interesting thing. I don't know if you guys have a similar thing down in the States. Like, do you, like, do do you have anything, any kind of experience with that kind of stuff? I think Netflix and Hulu both charge tax here. Do they? Yeah. Yeah. I think I it's just normal sales tax that that's included. If, uh, if anything yeah. at all, I'd have to look at my bill. 
Well, so it's it's significant. I mean, like with the number of people using Netflix here in Canada, and actually, was, was um, we were speculating a couple of weeks ago, um, and I saw a post by somebody online saying they missed the little red envelopes here in Canada. So I guess when Netflix came to Canada, they must have had the the disc delivery system because that's how Netflix started, right? With by, by sending out DVDs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, before they went online. Um, yeah, so I, I, you know, because there's no physical, like we have a sort of funny law here. If if you physically, if I burn something to a CD and I, like if I build a website for you and I burn it to a CD and I hand it to you, right, then I, I don't know, this law may have changed so people can stop yelling at their iPhones or whatever. But uh, back in the day, I didn't have, if I handed you a CD or printed out a laser copy, I was I was obligated to charge you provincial sales tax. But if, if I did something for you, like built a website and uploaded it to an FTP site for you, I didn't have to charge you sales tax, which was really strange, right? Because it wasn't, there was no physical good being handed over, right? Mm, so it's kind of a strange, strange thing. So anyway, so that's the big thing going through uh, it's, on, it's on the news right now, and you know people are up in arms. But you know, if you think about it, it's it's revenue for the government that that they could be using to you know pay for Canadian content, right? As well, right? They could turn it back into uh, grants for the arts. Sure, sure. Um, and I guess for this news, sort of bringing it back to like, what would this mean for developers? It's it's pretty early to say, but if if this sort of thing takes off, I think it would be good to watch out for or keep alert for things that would be available to developers that would sort of entice us to more deeply integrate with uh, Apple Music and whatever this uh, TV offering might be. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you can imagine mm-hmm. apps that are uh, built around, you know, creating your playlists or, or your wish list or whatever the, the case may be, or, or perhaps, um, you know, message app sharing extensions of like, oh, check out this really cool scene from, you know, episode five of this new TV show that comes out on, on Apple service. So I think that's where right, the, the right. opportunities might present themselves for developers. But do we have access to any APIs for Apple, Apple music? I know that for the um, iTunes store, we used to have uh, store sheets that we could put into our apps. And, you know, if you had an affiliate program, you could recoup some reference referral money like you do with Amazon. Right. But do we have any API access from Apple TV or Apple music? Sorry. There is some, like, I know you can add stuff to a playlist and probably even play stuff from Apple Music, assuming the user has uh, has signed up for the service, but I, I haven't really looked into it too far, so I can't say how deep it goes. Hmm. Well, one little interesting segue today, and I took a screenshot of it, or tried to, was, was um, I was listening to uh, another podcast, and, and there was a Kickstarter program that, um, well, it's Matt and Reese, actually, who's put together this microblog, micro.blog service, and part of it is a kick, Kickstarter. And actually, when I went to pay for it, it actually allowed me to use Apple Pay on the web. I guess that's, uh, I think we talked about that uh, as something that was coming or is available to us now. We can use Apple Pay as well on websites or Kickstarter. You know anything about that? I heard, well, I heard Apple Pay was coming to the web, but I never looked into it beyond just hearing rumors and whispers in the hallways, you know? Right. <laughs> Have you heard, had you heard of it, Jaime, or had you seen it anywhere? Uh, I had definitely heard of it. I remember it was one of those things that I thought was going to be really big coming out of WWDC, but um, I guess I haven't encountered any sites uh, personally, and, and that's probably just because I, I tend to stick in Chrome and not in Safari, and that's a safari only thing so that's probably why oh is it oh right yeah yeah and i bet that's really neat if you have the new macbook pro with the touch id sensor on it but that's (laughs) really slick i actually was on my my um 
my iPhone when I was listening to the podcast. And of course, then I, you know, I, I went to the Kickstarter thing and then clicked on it. And it was cool to see the little Apple Pay thing down there. Yeah. And I just used to use Touch ID on my phone to pay for it. It was like $10 US or something. But it was kind of cool. It was the first time I'd sort of seen that out in the wild, right? Or I didn't even know it was a thing. So you did that on mobile Safari, is what I'm hearing? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I went to I went to the release TV site on on my phone and then um, found the link to micro blog Kickstarter thing from Matt and Reese. So, figures Matt and Reese would do that, right? <laughs> yeah. So if you guys want to experience uh, Apple Pay on the web, go to micro blog Kickstarter and and check it out. <laughs> <laughs> Chip in some money if for no other reason than to you know beyond you know the the the, <laughs> the well to do stuff of like you know supporting the project is like hey let me try this cool thing out that I haven't tried out. Yeah, yeah, just for the sake of trying it. Every penny sure. counts, no matter how it comes to you, right? Yeah. Well, speaking of the new MacBook Pro, um, apparently Sla- our Consumer Reports has uh, turned around and they're now re- recommending the MacBook Pro, the new MacBook Pro 2016 with the Touch Bar, after going back and testing some stuff. I don't know. If, and you had mentioned, I think, a couple of weeks ago that uh, there was some question about the way they tested the uh, the batteries on these devices, right? Well, yeah, because it's completely unreasonable that, oh, we switched to Chrome, at, which is a known battery hog, and, oh, look, it lasted 18 right. hours. Like, what? No. I mean, really? Maybe it's condensing electricity out of the ether or something because this doesn't, <laughs> this doesn't make sense. And they followed up, and they had some, you know, some sort of, like, PR back-and-forth battle with Apple, and it, it turns out there is a there's a particular developer setting, if I'm not mistaken, within Safari that you can say, oh, I don't want you to cache anything, so therefore it will keep re-downloading right. everything. And apparently there's a horrible uh, bug within Safari related to this uh, this particular setup. Once they they verified with Apple this, uh, this whole situation, they retest it and like, oh, look, it actually lasts a reasonable amount of time. It's like 8 to 10 hours or something under their testing conditions. So it gets their seal of approval now. Hmm. Well, the good thing they're not using printed books anymore, printed magazines anymore, I guess, because they'd have to go back and stop the presses. Yeah. yeah interesting. <laughs> I, I think, well, one, bad on Apple for not, you know, for not testing that sort of thing and, and having that particular bug. Um, but I think also probably bad on Consumer Reports that they they seem to have been incentivized to get out a really juicy story rather than mm. really digging into it and say, whoa, 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 th- th- this is this is not right. You know, this this doesn't make sense. Let's let's go verify with Apple what the heck is going on because it, there's no possible way. Like it would be completely fraudulent, right, for Apple to say, "Oh, this gets you know eight to ten hours of battery life," and they're testing at Consumer Reports. Like, no, you get like three or four, right? That, that's a clear right. Like uh, the Federal Trade Commission uh, here in the United States would get involved if if you wanted them to, right? It's like, look, this is deceptive. This is fraudulent advertising. So. Since I can only assume that Consumer Reports probably should have said, like, yeah, pr- Apple's probably not committing fraud because they don't do that. Um, maybe we should, like, give them right. the benefit of the doubt and go figure out what's going on rather than either try to hit a particular deadline um, or try to get a particularly juicy title out there. Because this story was shared, like, everywhere because of that. Right, yeah. And, and it's funny because uh, Consumer Reports has always been supportive of Apple or Mac products anyway, right? At least uh, in my experience. All right, so this story just came out today, and uh, I want to say it's huge. But uh, so, yeah, so tell us about uh, Twitter and Fabric and Google. Yeah, so for those who may not have followed along this whole time, um, uh, Fabric is the whole set of developer tools. Um, It's many things, but I think the most 
common thing that people used it for was Crashlytics. It's, um, you know, crash oh, really, reporting yeah. uh, piece. Uh, there's other pieces, right? There's uh, like, I'm uh, forgetting the top, top of my head. There's like an analytics piece. There's the uh, advertising network. And when Twitter acquired them, they rolled in their, their digits framework, which was related to letting people sign up or two-factor authenticate through their phone, right? Through phone numbers. Um, Twitter has owned this for a while now. It looks like back in 2013, 2014-ish is probably when they acquired yeah, yeah. When, when they acquired Fabric. And they made it free because before you had like a freemium sort of thing where like you get some stuff for free, but if you're getting sort of like large usage, you have to go and pay a premium account. Um, and Twitter made it completely free for everyone for, for any amount of usage. Uh, come today, we get this announcement that Google is buying fabric from Twitter and incorporating it into its Firebase product, which we've mentioned mm. on the show before is, is, is very similar. Yeah. It brings a lot of analytics stuff, crash reporting, and then so on and so forth. So this is, I think this is pretty big because there's just so many different apps out there that use this service. So you're, you're, you're impacted in some way. Yeah. Well, crash Linux is huge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that's just like the sort of like, how does it impact everybody? Um, or the fact that it does impact so many different apps. I think the next thing is like the, the whys about this, because I think that gets towards the, like, let's take a step towards evaluating, um, you know, this is a third party component. This is a third party service. And if Mark were here, I'm sure he'd be like, ah, oh, see, there you go. Like stuff happens to yeah. your, your dependencies. And like, yeah, that's true. Um, I think in this case, it makes sense for both parties and is probably ultimately um, a reduction in in stress and, and risk for people who use this sort of stuff. I think Twitter at one point was looking to be more developer friendly, especially when Jack Dorsey came back on board. But it seems like they've sort of realized that that's not their path forward to success, right? That's, uh, mm-hmm. Being developer friendly is not going to help them, you know, look any better in front of um, the investors in the public market. And, and they're changing their, their approach to be much more focused on the Twitter product itself. So I don't think this really got the attention necessarily that it would you know really need from Twitter. Google, on the other hand, is really good at making developer tools and has a very large vested interest in making sure that people keep shoving data into their system. Um, and, and I think that's why they sort of doubled down on, on using Firebase and bringing, you know, acquiring that company and making it part of their foundation of their development platform. And so this feels like it would reduce the, the likelihood of this being cut for budgetary reasons, which I could see at Twitter because they're, they're dealing with like, how do we make money? And Google has tons of money. So it, it's kind of like a safer spot. Well, I, yeah, I know you threw Mark under the bus for a minute ago, but uh, he has been, you know, he's not a, not biggest fan of Twitter and he's, he often wonders why we are all on it. But, um, it, it, just the other day, the the Twitter made the mainstream news here in Canada. Nothing related to Fabric. That I'd, I'd have to go back and listen to the show. But they were talking about how Twitter stock has been you know, has been diving, and the president elect uh, in the states tends to want to use Twitter a lot, and that's sort of a questionable thing. But the um, uh, 
the uh, fact that Twitter is like, from my perspective, the fact that Twitter has been, you know, I guess they're bleeding money, if you will, like their stock. Pro- I'm, I have a few shares of stock and I've just been watching it go down and down and down, you know, basically writing off the money because it's, it's going to be gone soon, I think. Right. But them selling off fabric, you know, obviously it's going to be an infusion of cash, I would think, into the company or something into the company. Um, and perhaps that's going to give them a little bit of a, a, a longer lease on life. What do you think about that? I mean, when I look at it, I, I look at this being very similar to, uh, let's look at Facebook when it acquired Parse, right? right. So, uh, which, spoiler alert, they, they recently, have they? Yeah, by now I think they've shut shut down the Parse service. Yeah, it's, it's um, gone, yeah. yeah. They, they gave a year notice, and I think we've, we've hit that year notice now. At the time that Facebook acquired Parse, uh, it had also just recently gone public and was looking desperately for like, how can we make money? How can we draw in revenue? And this developer tools idea was one possibility. And as it turns out, their whole mobile ad network was way more lucrative. And so they ended up dumping the developer tools. And, and sadly, the people who are using parse are kind of left out in the cold or to their own devices. Um, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. Thankfully it's open source. So they could sort of, limp along with other stuff and, and other services have cropped up but that's a lot less uh you know one-stop shop as it was before right you're, you're kind of on your own more and i i feel like uh, fabric could easily have ended up the same way if it had stayed with twitter because twitter is also desperately looking for some sort of way to make money and if they find that way it's a nice you know change things on the balance books, but like, Hey, let's just dump this thing. So it's not a, a huge cost to us anymore, right? Let's do this thing that makes money. And I think, yeah, yeah. Again, moving this to Google who has all, you know, other motives and, and, and tons of money in the bank. Nobody's looking at Google saying, Hey, wait a minute. Like, how are you guys going to make, is they make boatloads of money, right? They, they probably literally <laughs> bring them in like on boats, <laughs> just big old boats of fat stacks of cash and money bags. And so I feel like this is a much safer. Yeah. I feel like this is like, it just goes right there. Like there's probably a port right there in mountain view that they just, they just bring in the tankers. (laughs) (laughs) Tankers of cash, right? (laughs) Tankers of cash, just fat stacks of cash just coming into Google constantly. Yeah. Well, I think that Mark would probably, and I, and I kind of see it that, you know, reducing overhead is one of the things you do when, when you have, uh, when you're in trouble, I mean, you know, and the reality is, is that maybe, maybe having the whole fabric, uh, thing, fabric service around and crashlytics and stuff like that was probably costing them more than it was benefiting them, you know, and to spin it off to Google, um, you know, I think everyone wants to get acquired by Google at some point, right? So maybe even just a, a partial acquire acquisition by, by uh, Google towards fabric would, would help Twitter out, you know? So, but, but again, it, mm-hmm. it, it kind of, I'd love to hear what Mark would have to say about that. Maybe we'll ask him next week, you know, does this read the death knell for, uh, for Twitter? I'm just sitting here wondering, like, you know, you brought up parse earlier and it's like, I, I don't understand why large companies buy these smaller things and then get rid of them. Is it just so they don't have competition yeah. or what? Like, I don't, I don't, I, I don't understand that. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. Like you think when when uh, somebody like Facebook buys Parse that it's going to make Parse better, but yeah, it's it was kind of a shocker for a lot of people, right? Because I mean, uh, and, and some of the replacement products that that Jaime was sort of alluding to, I think Firebase is one of them, right? Um, mm-hmm. As well as uh, I think Realm has something a tool that people can use for uh, Parse replacement. Parse was around for a long time, right? Um, and they, I think they were, yeah, because I, I I think when it was building Two Life back in 
2012, we actually considered Parse for a few minutes because, you know, because um, it had just come out, right? And uh, and it was it seemed to be relatively easy to use and that kind of stuff, right? So I think that's why a lot of people went to it. But, um, yeah, it, it's it's a shocker. And, and I think it, it kind of left a lot of people high and dry when when um, when Facebook shut it down, right? For Scrambling sure. anyway. I don't know. I, I yeah, typically right. won't use third-party services mainly for that reason. You know, when I was doing heavier development for anything, really, it would be, okay, can I get away with doing it with the tools and the frameworks provided in whatever I'm coding for? Cool. Right, right. If I can, excellent. If I needed to look to a third-party library because either the tools inside the SDK were not there or we're not good, I would really, really have to strongly consider, is that feature necessary right now? Because right. so many times you'll sit there and you'll blood, sweat, and tears into getting this third-party library to work, and you've got everything working, and then something changes and everything stops working, or somebody decides not to contribute to that third-party library anymore, or gets bought out by the bigger fish. I mean, there's a number of different reasons, at least for me, why I tend to shy away from third-party libraries as much as I can. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't some fantastic ones out there that people should be utilizing. It just means that I don't want the headache. You all take care of that. <laughs> well, I was gonna, I was gonna say since Mark's on the show, you have to be the curmudgeon tonight, and and you, you filled that road really, roll really well. <laughs> Thank you. Um, would you do what Mark does? <laughs> would, would you do what Mark does, and would you build your own sort of way of dealing with whatever feature you needed, or what would you do? I probably would build my own, only because then I really am very intimate with it, and if I need. If I need to update it in some way that I can. Now, that being mm-hmm. said, it really depends on what the feature is because there's also no point in reinventing the wheel. Okay. So it goes right, back yeah. to do I need this feature right now? Is whatever I'm trying to accomplish really worth the time and the energy required to make it work? And a lot of times the answer is no. It's just mm-hmm. no, it's really not. So I don't know, you know, I just, I'm not a huge proponent of third party libraries for me personally. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. On the plus side, since let's see, Parse came out probably five or six years ago. And and in that time frame, uh, a lot of stuff has gone on in the open source community that has made it sort of less necessary to have that sort of thing. Right. Um, I mean, scaling, like if your service becomes, you know, Instagram level popular, like you're, you're in for a world of hurt in, in terms of scaling some of that stuff, um, that you would get sort of out of the box with these, but you know, for smaller, uh, you know, smaller than Instagram projects, uh, you're probably pretty good just going with a lot of the open source bits that are out there. Um, either parse itself as an open source project. Um, there's other things that are a little bit easier to sort of pull these things together. Right. Um, Node is pretty popular, and people are using you know, Docker and, and Kubernetes to orchestrate these things in ways that, that would have been a lot more painful to do, uh, sort of the, the system administrator or sysops type work. Um, it, it has gotten a lot less painful than it was back in you know, 2011, so I think it's less daunting now to put this sort of thing together uh, for, your, for yourself and, and control uh, you know, the keys to your own kingdom. I'm just going to burn the kingdom down. <laughs> that was pretty dark. 
That's okay. Um, right. So, Jaime, why don't you tell us about uh, Instagram and wide color? What's going? What's that all about? Yeah. So remember back when Apple talked about like, hey, we've got this whole color thing that's going to be, you know, cheaper, better, faster. No, it's probably more just like you know a, a broader set of colors um, where things are mostly in. Uh, I think it's sRGB right now. Um, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. they give us the wider color gamut with, uh, what is it like P3 something or other, um, very similar. Yeah. Uh, but you didn't just get it out of the box in this Instagram post from their engineering team talks about some of the things that they had to do, uh, which I thought was, was pretty helpful. Cause I've, I've touched color spaces a very tiny bit. Like I, I definitely mm-hmm. recognized the, um, like, Oh, like using UI graphics, begin image context with options and then, you know, plucking a, a ui image out of the current image context and you have to be uh a little bit smarter about that if you're somebody like instagram where they've they are using the new apis that are uh, p3 you know broad color gamut aware um but they also did a really good job of making it sort of seamless for their engineers to work with so they don't have to think oh let me put this if statement here like if this supports higher quality color let me get this otherwise support that they've they use some extensions to sort of make that easier for them where it defaults to the um the old approach underneath the covers right so it's very seamless uh and also what was pretty nice is they give an example and i can't find the link now they give an example of an image that they use it's a it's an image of their instagram logo but um in red and I saw it on a device that apparently supports the full color gamut, uh, that being right. my iPad Air 2. So I was able to see the logo. Um, I haven't looked at other devices. They claim that if you use their example image on a device that does not support, all you see is just a red square. So that sort of gives you like a, uh, oh yeah, here you go, sample mm. one. Let me look on this device. Let me see. Okay, so I am looking on my, um, this is my 2012 retina macbook pro the first edition and it is just a red square so sure. there you go so that I, I can tell that it works then it's in the post it's okay. under a canary is, is the title um they also talk about in this about uh how they dealt with their their whole filter pipeline so i think they're less dependent on this than they were you know maybe back in 2012 but it's still certainly very popular for people to add uh, maybe not the sepia tone, but you know other filters to their Instagram photos. And apparently, they had trouble using their um, their normal OpenGL method of, of editing and filtering because OpenGL apparently is not color managed; it just operates on a range, and then it's up to the, yeah. the output to determine what the colors are. Uh, in their case, they said, "Oh, well, mm, the way we're going to hack around this is by." doing all this stuff off screen in a buffer and then placing it on the screen using a UI image view, which is wide color compatible by default. Um, right. And since they're not, as they point out, not a high frame, uh, high frame rate application, like a game, it was sufficient for their needs. Like they're reaching out and wondering like, Hey, if you've developed a high frame rate way of doing this, we want to hear from you. So if anybody out there knows more about this than than I do, I, I'd certainly be interested to hear more about that because that that seems like a non-trivial problem. If uh, Instagram was looking to punt on it, 
Right. Well, I've, I've because I come from uh, ink on paper and publishing, um, dealing with digital photography in early days. I've spent a lot of time with color management. Um, and uh, so, for instance, one of the things you mentioned here in this thing is the ICC um, ICC profiles, which are International Color Consortium profiles, which are used in displays to convert, you know, RGB colors into something that you can look at on the screen or print on a press or what have you, right? So uh, it's interesting stuff. I'm going to pull this image into Photoshop and see if I can figure out what the hell's going on with it. But um, interesting stuff. And, and it was, yeah, I think it was the... Um, you said your iPad Air 2 as well. I think the iPad Pros have, uh, mm-hmm. it's what, 9.7 iPad Pro, I believe, has that new fancy display with the uh, P3 color support. But you said you can see this on your your iPad Air 2, but not on, you have an iPhone 7, right? I haven't looked at it um, on my iPhone 7 Plus. I, I assume being nearer, it probably would support it. But I think, it, yeah. I think it might be a difference in whether it supports the, the wide color display versus um, I think what you were referring to was the true tone display, which is slightly different, uh, but possibly right, related right. technology. There's a link in this uh, note here to uh, hippolabs.com. They've got a, a, a short little post from 2012, actually on ICC profiles. And they have an image here that they've, they're showing a before and after on the same image. So will throw that in the show notes as well. But yeah, it's a, it's an interesting thing, like in terms of how, um, color is taken from it's it's you know it's it's raw form and then displayed to you on your various devices in different ways right i think one interesting thing that they they point out here towards the end of the post is how they decided to deal with storing images i think on the one hand at at smaller scale you know disk space is getting so cheap bandwidth is getting so cheap that it it may not be uh, that big of an issue um i'm kind of surprised that they decided to do this even at, at their scale. So they're using Facebook's uh, CDN, the content delivery network. Mm-hmm. And they, they decided that rather than having the apps or other clients be smart about handling this sort of thing, they actually just end up storing different versions of a, a wide color compatible and a non what skinny color. I don't know what to call the opposite skinny color compatible. <laughs> okay. <laughs> image. Yeah, sure. Um, on their back end, and then clients will just declare themselves to be like, yeah, verily, I'm wide color compatible. Give me the wide color compatible version. So they're switching mm-hmm. on that based on um, sort of the, the back end understanding what the clients are capable of accepting. I'm looking up a name here. Oh, there we go. I found the, the right name. I feel like this is the sort of thing. It'd be great to see um, Gus Mueller. If anybody recognizes that name, he's the uh, indie developer for Acorn, the image editing mm-hmm. software. And I remember yeah. uh, maybe a couple of years ago sitting in maybe like a CocoConf presentation he did about color. And it just sort of blew my mind, like how little I actually yeah. knew about color spaces and, and how they all work. And I'd love to see that updated to here because I am I tried following along with this this blog post and I, and I get how the, the Apple API stuff works. But I'd be very curious to see how that really works under the covers and what this all means uh, beyond mm-hmm, just what the mm-hmm. APIs give you. Well, color for me for for a number of years was the holy grail in terms of trying to get it to manage it and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, and you said you dealt with print, so you probably had to deal with CMYK switching over to yeah play. conversions. Yeah, well, we right. we had um, we had originally um, a camera called Big Shot, which was one of the first digital um, uh, CCD cameras. 
uh, for use for the high-end photography. And then we got into phase one, which are used on Hasselblad bodies, which they use for a lot of product, uh, like product photography and fashion photography. Um, so we were always dealing with, you know, taking the files into into Photoshop, managing them, color managing them, and you know, printing them out on on. We had like uh, inkjet printers made by Iris, big giant ones. And uh, I'm trying to think who the other name was. And we would have to color manage the output so that it would look like it would on a web on on a, a printing press, right? So, um, one of the funny stories is there's a standard out there called uh, SWAP, which is standard, which stands for Standard Web Offset Press. And what it was was the average color of the worst printers, worst like 50 printers in the United States, right? Was this became this color standard for people not, not realizing these were the worst presses you could have. Um, and, and mm-hmm. so that was kind of that swap standard became the sort of thing that, uh, people would, uh, would match all their color to. So kind of ironic, you know, and then, you know, there was a period of time there where they got into what they call hi-fi color, where you would print with, and they use that on, on inkjet printers now, where you'd have a couple of cyans and a couple of magentas because CMYK color is not pure and you can never actually reproduce what you can see on a monitor in ink or on paper. Right. So it was always a challenge, right? Until they got into the high def color, and then you know, of course, nobody would buy it, and <laughs> yeah, lots of like, that was that was like for me, that was like the nineties. <laughs> the nineties was all my color management days. So happy to put them behind me. I feel like that's still an unsolved problem. I remember that you know, not that long ago, maybe five, five, six years ago, Adobe had its whole like install this profile, and this will match. Make right. sure that your monitor matches what you're expecting to output. Um. Yeah, I, and I don't know. I feel like, at least from the printing side, maybe people kind of solved it by you know, yeah. air quotes solved it by just printing less. It's kind of more about right. a display based. Um, well, here, here's an exercise you can do right now. Anybody who's not dri- who's driving at home listening to the show can can uh, do this. But if you're on your Mac, open up System Preferences and go to Displays, right? And then uh, there's a tab there called Color. And underneath the, when you get to the color, like I'm looking at a, I have a cinema LED cinema display that I have on my Mac, and then I've got my my color display on my on my um, uh, MacBook 13, and I'm using color LCD. All if you see a list there of different color palettes, those are all um, color managed color spaces, right? So on mine, I'm seeing Adobe RGB 1998. I'm seeing Apple RGB CIE, which is another you know global standard color. Um, and then you can, if you look at, if you, if you have this on your screen and you can hit the calibrate button and what that'll do is it takes you through a couple of steps where it'll walk you through how to, how to, how to visually match your display to get you the best sort of gray balance and color balance that you can, right. Um, in terms of how you're looking at it. And, and this is, this is color sync. This is what we used to call color. We used to call color sync and had to install profiles. It's all built, built into Macs and, and, uh, windows machines for a long, long time. Right. So we used to sit down and, and fuss with that. We used to calibrate every monitor. We had all the, you know, the CR, CC, what is it? CRT color, cathode ray tube. We had all mm-hmm. the cathode ray tube monitors. We had to go through and with, with a hockey puck, we'd put on the front of the screen and it would read the color that was being output. And we'd have software to manage to do the proper gray balance across all the different monitors. And every different manufacturer had a, had a slightly different, uh, uh, profile that they would do. And I, one thing I, I've always found is Apple displays have always been the best sort of gray balance color managed uh, displays on the market. Right. So 
Yeah, and and but this this was my life. Was we had you know had interns running around with hockey pucks once a week, just going through and making sure everybody's monitors were balanced. But you know, so if you, if you take a few seconds, just go through the go through the display calibration assistant uh, thing here and in, in built into OS ten uh, or Mac OS, I guess now um, you'll see how you'll see how you can color profile a monitor, and it'll it'll offer to save you know whatever profile you want and. What it does actually it changes the way the images and things display on your on your various monitors and stuff, right? So we don't have this in iOS though, but thankfully. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot more consistent, right? Like I think it can be sort of pre-tuned out of the box because they're they're shipping you a device that is a display with other stuff bolted to it. So it's not as right, if, right. well, yeah, you might buy the Apple display, but maybe you bought the LG or the Samsung um I mean, they know it's not like, oh, <laughs> right, right. it's not like, oh, I got my MacBook Pro. Well, it didn't come with a screen. Let me go buy a screen from like Lenovo and shove it in there and, and see what happens. Well, you know, you, you actually say that, but, um, uh, w- well, my client, um, uh, two life who we did the app for, um, one of the things that, that, uh, Diane, the publisher said when, when the iPad first came out was, and she came out of, remember she came out of magazine printing and, and, you know, she had, she used to have to drive up to, you know, three, four hours North of the city and, and do press approvals where they would print the magazine and then show it to her. And she'd say, no, the red's not right or whatever. And, and go through and, and massage the color to the point where they need it. That's what people did in printing. And they probably still do to this day. Right, they, what they call press approvals, right? Um, mm-hmm. But she said about the iPad when it first came out was was finally she was able to put her product onto a device that she knew would look the same here as it would in England or or United States or whatever because no matter where you looked, the, the iPads were consistent in terms of color, right? And that said, then you know the, the 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 original MacBook 15 Retina display came out, and Apple had two suppliers, and there were differences between the color on the two on the two uh, displays, right? In fact, there was a, I think one of them had a defect and had to get there was a, like a, a recall where Apple was re- replacing them. So there's been a sort of you know a, a sorted history, I guess I could say, in terms of um, different things that happen on displays, and I think now. Um, I'm trying to think the iPhone 6 maybe I remember talking to somebody about the fact that there was two different uh, LCDs used in 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 the iPhones at one point right and there was a slight mm-hmm. difference between them right so and and I don't know if you over over time like well we know now that the iPad Air no the iPad Pro has a different display and you said your MacBook Retina has a different display right a P, P2 or P3 right um, because you can see that Instagram image for instance right yeah, I can see I can see the proper image on my iPad Air two, but cannot see it on my 2012 Retina MacBook Pro. Right, right, right. Yeah, and I, mm-hmm. I can't see it on my on my MacBook Air because obviously MacBook Air doesn't have a great screen either, and my or my old LCD uh, cinema display here doesn't ha- is an older like uh, you know mid mid two thousands display. So it can, all I see is a big red block as well, right? So it's kind of amazing to me that like here we are. Let's see. <laughs> 2017? Uh, well, I know we're in 2017. I'm trying to think of how far back. Okay, so it's it's been more than 20 years from when I remember having to deal with web-safe colors. Do you remember that old exactly, concept? Yeah, like, yeah. Use oh, one yeah, of these, yeah, yeah. like, 16 colors in, on your web page, and every browser everywhere can render this. And we're still basically dealing with the give, same give problem. Take, give or take. Just, it's yeah. like, well, this one has, you know, 32 million colors, and this one has 64 million colors, so your mileage may vary. Well, the other thing I didn't tell you about the color management assistant thing I was just talking about is the ambient light in the room also has an effect, right? 
At one point in time, we used to we used to have a radio. Radius used to make a display for doing color correction in Photoshop, right? And it came with the hockey puck, and you could do the whole calibration thing. They even gave you a black smock to wear while you were color correcting, because the color of your clothes reflecting off the monitor would change your perception of color. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's really, and, but I mean, that, I, that's how anal people get about it, right? Yeah, and I think that's what the True Tone technology that you kind of mentioned for the iPad uh, Pro nine point seven inch has that it's it's supposed to correct for that, if I'm not mistaken, right? right. Like, oh, yes, for um, ambient light, yeah. Let's see, the, the ambient light in this room that I'm in right now is kind of yellowish tinted because of the light bulb that I have in there. But if I was in exactly yeah. a different room where you have blue tint, once presumably if I walk from room to room, the same photo would. Um, would adjust, uh, or I should say the, the monitor would adjust, the screen would adjust on the, the iPad if I took it there to make sure I'm still seeing the color as intended, not with extra tint thrown in for the environment. It's back to that blue dress thing we talked about last year, right? Mm-hmm. Remember the blue dress, mm-hmm. it looked white to some people, and it would depend on the time of day and the amount of light in the room and what kind of monitor you were looking at. Um, your perception of that, that dress would change over time. Right. Did you ever yeah. experience that? I know I, I did. did. I, I did on on a on a bus from uh, for a company offsite, and I I thought people were insane or that it was some sort of joke. <laughs> like, a, what do you mean it's not black and blue? What do you mean you see white and green? That's no. <laughs> You're telling me up is down and left is right. That doesn't make sense. But totally, that you just experienced what I'm talking about is that the ambient light. You know, the, how tired you are, what time of day it is, what color, what color shirt you're wearing. All of this stuff expects, uh, affects your perception of color and how it's displayed off the screen as well. Right? So weirdness. Wow. I guess I guess it still is the holy grail. Hmm. 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 Cam, you got anything to say about color before we move on? No, nothing about color. <laughs> <laughs> color color bothers me. I just did a color study, so I'm a little colored out. Okay. What was the color study about? Just for setting moods for scenes and things like that. And you know, like the different oh. the different tones and the heat and the I mean like my head was swimming by the time I was done with it. I'm still not done with it. I'm still in the process of doing color studies, but right, right. you know, like the obvious ones. The, the reds and the oranges are hotters and the blues and the, 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 the white colors are cooler and things like that. And, you know, what, what yes. kind of a mood do you want for this scene or for right. that character? So yeah, the color is, color is life. Color is everything. Yeah. I don't know how colorblind yeah. people do it. Cause I, I, I know some colorblind people and mm-hmm. I can't even imagine, you know, like, I'm working with someone now who's colorblind and I'll send over this color and I have to send over more than just the color. I have to send over, you know, the code for the color, for example, just to make sure that it's the right, right. color. <laughs> but, you know, they right, won't, right. they can't see everything that I see. And I don't know that I could, I right. don't think I could live in a world that I couldn't see all the colors. Yeah. We also, we had a, a lady on roundabout a couple of weeks ago, uh, I guess last month uh, in last fall, who was, I think she did drawings for, remember the illustrator? She she did like, not, she didn't do drawings for for films or whatever, but she did sto- sort of storyboards, not storyboards. Betsy Bauer? I don't Bauer? remember she was talking about, and she was talking about um, how you could set the mood by geometric shapes in the image or in the scene and the colors in the scene. Do you remember her make yeah, that comment? I think that was her, but yeah, she, whoever it was, it's absolutely correct. I mean, like, you know, with character design, round is, is more 
you're more comfortable, friendly, more loving, more friendly, yeah. sharp, pointy stuff is evil doer guy. You know, you stay away from him. Right. Like Darth Vader. Exactly. The more angles you have, the the more unapproachable that thing or that character is. You, then you start to bring in the right. hotter colors or the, the darker colors. And now you've got yourself an evil dude. You know, you make a round, right, fluffy, right. you know, uh, you, light yellow colored character. You just want to go over and hug him. Right, right, right. Yeah, maybe it was Betsy Bauer. Hmm. I don't think it was. But yeah, it's all about the color. So while I have a lot to say about color, I'm sure the listeners would be very bored to hear it. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, we, we bored them enough with, with between Jaime and I. But but it was interesting, Jaime, to, to hear her talk about, you know, using sharp angles and stuff like that to create a disturbing scene. Like, you know, like, like, like you know, the scenes where you, like, you go to a, a castle or whatever, and it's all pointy and sharp. And, you know, that's they, they kind of do that on purpose, believe it or not, in movies, right? To, to mess with our heads. Yeah, and the same things about color and shape really apply to app development too, right? Like, so for the design, the visual design piece, where surprise, surprise, if you're looking at a particular kind of app, and, and we've talked about this before, where um, different colors can mean different things, right? That certain uh, certain kinds of apps, like yeah. I think food apps, tend to be red because it inspires appetite in it, and right, yeah. sort of uh, orange is kind of like a not really one that's impactful from a sort of cultural standpoint, but ended up being more like a standout color that people used. Um, right. And, bl- and blue is very conservative and safe. And, you know, so that's why a lot of IT mm-hmm. companies use blue in their logos. And yeah. And stuff, banks yeah. use green because green is money. Um, health. Oh, really? Uh, uh, health, uh, like, you know, like Weight Watchers type stuff, I would assume uses green because green is also fresh and it gives you sort of a serene feel. Yeah. There, there's there's definitely a lot that goes into it so it's not just like oh yeah that's cool we use it in you know media it's like no like uh, of course some of these are kind of culturally dependent so be real careful with your colors but in general like you can evoke a certain feeling with those things i can't uh, I wait till we get to well. the pics now because i you just added one for me but i'm not i really want to talk about <laughs> oh, good, it now but okay. i won't and i'm gonna save it i'm gonna save it i'm gonna save it <laughs> okay good 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 girl good girl so listen um i was actually reading this next post by ash furrow friend of the show i think he's a friend of the show yeah he's a friend of the show he i'm still now. blaming him for swift i'm blaming him for swift because i was at wwc and he was there as well and in 2014 and when they when they said we got this new language called swift and and i I just tweeted him and said this is your fault so but anyway ash (laughs) has written an article here on naming things so why don't you tell us about that jaime yeah so we've we've talked about sort of idiomatic swift and and all the different things that that means and we've talked about um sort of the difficulties in sort of getting concepts across right because what we're dealing with in software development is very abstract things and and naming things is like, as it said, is one of the hardest things in, in software development for sure. And, and this post I thought was pretty good because it, it starts out from the sort of standpoint of like using what Scala and what that language uses as sort of its language guidelines, as well as the sort of official uh, Swift.org uh, API design guideline. It kind of goes a little bit further in some things. And, and I think they're pretty good guidelines, right? So like, let's take a look at some of the examples from the the blog post like wider scoped names should be longer and in this case he gives the example like you know in a simple for loop where you're looping through um you know 10 digits and printing them out why is it okay to use the name i and recognizing that for you know for i is going to represent each one of those iterations of values 
but you wouldn't accept mm-hmm. anyone like in a code review giving you a struct that has an attribute on it that's i you'd be like what what in the world is this i don't know what that is right like the the scope of usage is just too broad for for the struct or you can imagine a class in the same case where it, right. where it would not be appropriate right and he gives a, a a fix where it's like well instead of you know i of type int let's make it number of interactions of type int so when you see that in the code base oh yeah you, hmm. you kind of get what's going on and also uh, sort of going along with like more used names should be shorter right so like if you're using something a ton of times and it sort of out of repetition becomes like oh yeah i know what that is you know it doesn't need a huge enormous name and i know that sort of like um objective c for sure is definitely pretty wordy but i feel like a lot of the long name insanity kind of came out of the uh the java days in the 90s where things were like abstract factory factory presenter pattern type stuff and uh you kind of don't need that as much uh spoiler alert for like later in the blog post he talks about like well if you have strongly typed things uh, like we do in swift as opposed to let's say like javascript um you can kind of let the type give the developer more information right you don't have to say oh this is a downloader delegate it's like well it's part of that class or part of that struct so i kind of know that that's what it is right like it's not as mysterious as it was before like it could be in the objective seed days where it could be in this object or id right or id right um the more used names i think it, it should be shorter is, is a pretty good one because i've definitely seen that in the oh my gosh i like Yes, it auto-completes pretty well in, in Xcode, but it's kind of painful to sort of read and see this thing that's uh, that's used repetitively, repetitively. Um, I think the one that, if you're going to take something away from this blog post that you should really like, glom onto and start using on a daily basis, it's the dangerous names should be longer. Mm-hmm. Right? So so he kind of gives the counterexample of like something that's not dangerous, like loading from cache. Like, you really don't need to give it, like, a really long, wordy name because it's, like, if you're really interested in that, you, you'll go take a look. But something like um, deleting API credentials from the cache, like, if that's a destructive <laughs> thing that you don't want to deal with, like, that's a really right. good name because that will let people know, like, oh, this one's important. Maybe I should check to see what this does, right? And as opposed to, like, is it Dell token? which is like yeah, short for token, delete yeah. tokens. Like, well, okay, what does that do? Right. That doesn't sound too bad. Delete a token. Uh, I can get more tokens. I'm, I'm flush with tokens. All right. Um, I, I think those sorts of things are, are, are good to follow because I've, I've definitely encountered code bases where really tiny innocuous sounding names had huge ramifications. If you use them incorrectly. Um, let me hmm. see here. Oh, emitting names entirely, I think is one that's very, very swifty and i haven't seen the community really bond around this one so he kind of gives the the example of like named versus unnamed parameters like positional parameters in closures and i don't know uh, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm still relatively new to swift still using it uh, more and more on a daily basis um in my day-to-day job and i really ha- i really haven't figured out sort of what the right thing to do is like it is kind of handy that you can just do dollar zero and dollar one and yeah, you have yeah, a really yeah. a really small closure like yeah okay i, I kind of get it um i think i've seen folks get a little too cute with that where i almost feel like i prefer the wordiness 
Um, but I don't know if that's because it's it actually makes it easier to read as a newcomer, or if I'm sort of coming at it from a very biased standpoint because I'm used to the wordiness of Objective C. I'm used to it reading right, like right. prose rather than it being uh, very succinct. So I think that's the one guideline that uh, I'd like to see sort of more analysis on and, and, and sort of try it out in, in the code base that I'm working on and sort of see how it feels if it's, uh, I, I think writing is one thing, but sort of reading it myself again, you know, a week or two later, and then seeing when other people write something similar, how I feel about it and whether I truly understand what, what's going on. And he mentions this guy, Ray Wunderlich or something. Who? <laughs> Apparently they got a guide. Uh, I don't know who these people are. It sounds like random Joes on the street, apparently, but it uh, sounds like they're pretty smart. So I'd, I'd say go check it well, out. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's been my pick before the Swift style guide. We actually use that at work too. So the official com style guide, which our friend of the show, Greg, initially had a hand in, but he's no longer involved in it. But Yeah. So have you, having looked through this post, have you encountered uh, any of these kinds of issues or have other things that maybe you're like, oh, yeah, you should also consider this because this is what well, has bitten we me. We actually are project. going through the, we're going through this right now. I mean, like, you know, one of the things about um, adopting a new language is, is uh, how do you deal with things like um, naming? Like Mark and I are big fans of, of uh, self-documenting code where, you know, the, the and that's one of the things you mentioned about um, Objective-C was that you could have method names that kind of explain what they were doing, you know? Um, and it's, and it's, it's kind of sort of the same sort of thing we're looking for in Swift and, and some of the rules in Swift, I'm just trying to find here, um, you know, there's a sort of the Swift.org has those rules. It's in the post here somewhere, um, about like when, you know, the whole idea behind where Swift three is right now is, is that, you know, to, to try and reduce redundancies, um, and, and shorten things up and be much, much more succinct in, in the way you're, you're, you're naming things. Whereas Objective-C tended to be a bit repetitive, right, in terms of, like, method declarations and stuff like that. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, trying to get rid of, trying to get, trying to make it a bit more clearer. But at the same time, now we're all sort of, and as Ash says at the beginning of the post, we're starting to develop these idioms as we all start using Swift and, and uh, uh, start dealing with it, right? So... So yeah, we are we are dealing with this right now, and we're um, going through how we, as a group, want to basically have a sort of standard in terms of how we're going to style our our code. And that help? Yeah, and and Tammy, <laughs> have you run into this sort of thing on on the projects you've been working on? Not really, mostly because I haven't been doing a whole lot of that. Uh, right. Okay. So uh, I don't know that it's 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 quite as applicable, but I. I distinctly remember when I was back in school trying to help out a um, a fellow classmate on whatever assignment it was, and I remember he had way too much fun with the variable names he was using. You know, let's say the assignment was, right. oh, um, make a calculator, right? And I go, okay, well, I was still learning, just like everybody else does, and maybe some of the variable names if I look at them now, I'd be like, hmm, that's not great. I would have named it this instead. But at least it was a, a good you know, attempt at making it um, sort of self-documenting. Uh, this guy, though, I remember him naming stuff like A, A2, Meet, Log. Mm. <laughs> I'm like, what? It's like, I right, can't right. read your code. I can't, I can't help you, man. I can't even understand 
what's going on here. This is like completely a representation of what's in your head. It, it, I, I, I can't, I, I can't even read it. Might as well be in its own mm. different language. So I, I think sort of the, whatever lesson you take out of this, this blog post, um, I would think it would be like, think about the fact that somebody's going to have to read this at some point, uh, assuming it's a longer lived project. Right. So, uh, even if it's just you in the future, uh, you'll want to know what you were talking about and without having to really follow through, you know, with breakpoints step by step by step to try to say, Oh, it was adding these two numbers together. Oh, okay. Got it. You know, the say that the saying goes code, like the guy that's going to read it after you knows where you live. <laughs> yeah. And he's a psychopath. <laughs> you know, kind of semi-related. I find myself saying all the time, like, you know, future version of me is a wizard and knows how to figure out all of this stuff. But past version of me is just a complete moron that doesn't know what's going on. And, and I live somewhere in that gray area in between in the right. present. I find myself punting a lot of um, design decisions with the, well, wizard me will figure it out. And future me in the future is like, what the heck was I thinking here? This doesn't make any sense. Right. Mm. All right. Well, let's, let's, uh, on that note, let's, uh, move into the pick area. Yay. So have you got a pick there, Tammy? I have two. Am I allowed to give you two? Sure. Yeah. Since, since I have none. All right. Well, well, my first one before we had our conversation was affinity designer, which I just started Mm -hmm. using. Um, Mm -hmm. I was really reluctant to move over to it. I had tried it a long time ago, I think when it was in beta and I, I liked it, you know, it, it, it was, it did what it needed to do, but I didn't really end up using it. And I've been working on this project the past, um, little while here. And one of the people that I'm working with on it, that's all they use pretty much is affinity designer. And I'm like, look, I just, I don't want to spend the money. I don't need another tool. Well, I ended up spending the money and as it turns out, I do need another tool. So that is my pick. If you're not using Affinity Designer because you're stubborn like me, get up off your wallet and hand over the, I think it was like $50. Um, what, do you guys, what, yeah. what do you guys say? when? Because you, you Canadians, you say it weird, like your $50 US or something. Is that what you say? So that's my that's my one pick, Affinity Designer. So I want to ask you a question about Affinity Designer because it's come up a couple of times in conversations. Is it uh, like a Photoshop replacement, or is it no, sort of just another Illustrator, Photoshop hybridy? No, 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 no. It's all vector. Oh, it's vector. Okay. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, so it's Illustrator kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. And it's really good. Now I'm mm-hmm. I won't lie. I literally just bought it today and just started using right. it today. So I don't have much more beyond like that honeymoon period. But it was really easy right. to pick up. There's a lot of cool tutorials out there. Uh, so definitely get it or try it out. They might even, I don't know if they have a trial, but even if they don't, you should totally get it anyway. So my second pick. Yeah. What, well, before what? you move on to that, from that, I was going to say, like a friend of mine was recommending a look at Affinity Designer and, and time, or sorry, Jaime had mentioned um, Acorn earlier, right? And um, I had started using Acorn because I'm looking for something that is eventually going to replace Photoshop, right? So. Well, you should look at it then. What's your next pick? My next pick, just because of the conversation we had about color and whatnot, and then Jaime was saying about it is relevant for designers. Another thing that I believe anyone who's in design or development or anything where they have to deal with um, end users, 
they really need to pick up the principles of design. It's a book. I don't know when it was published, but it was published a long while ago. And it is my holy Bible when it comes to thinking about design, you know, like where do I put this control or this button or how do I space out this person's eyes if I'm doing character design or something? So, I mean, it really, anyone who is working on anything that you have to think about how the other person is going to use it, user ability, especially with regard to app design, the principles of design is the best book out there, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. That's my pick. That's my second pick. All right. I'll send you a link in the, uh, whatchamacallit. That would be awfully swell. Oh, I know, right? Here it is. Universal Principles of Design, right here, right on Amazon. I'll send you a link. Wow, I'm looking at this um, Affinity Designer. Get it. A lot of really (laughs) cool features. So one, works in any color space, RGB, CMYK, Lab, Grayscale, so on and so forth. The file compatibility, there are files I don't even know what these are. I recognize SVG. I recognize PSD, PDF. I have no idea what EPS and FH are. EPS is encapsulated postscript, which you know printers would know. Um, cool, and it looks like if you, I'm assuming this is still available, you can get a free UI kit with Purchase Affinity Designer. It looks like they've come up with um, sort of UI elements that you can use uh, either for your design or to mock up what you're doing, you know, like switches, labels, buttons, uh, hero images, that sort of thing. And apparently each one comes in a light and dark version which is actually pretty cool because the the scuttlebutt right now is that Apple is going to be introducing a dark UI option for some version of iOS in near term. And so we might end up having to think about making our UI at, you know, dark mode compatible. Like, right. I don't know if you've seen like, like the official Twitter app has a dark mode, which, which is what I use. So the, the default background color for tweets is like some dark gray Right. And I find it a lot more pleasant on my eyes. So it's not just beaming, you know, pure white straight into my eyeballs. His pick is I like now, the fact that Infinity Diviner is not a not a subscription price. It's just one price. Isn't Pay that once. nice? That's awfully nice. It's so retro. <laughs> <laughs> you own the bits forever, uh, as long as it supports your version. It looks like it's... How far back does it go? So it's Sierra compatible, but I didn't see the minimum... Well, it actually was a, it won an ADA, um, back in 2015. So Apple design award, right? So I do, I remember hearing about it at the time, but it's also on the iPad. Apparently it's coming to the iPad. It's not there yet. So how about that, Tammy? Yeah. I'm still using procreate on the iPad, which I was just using about 20 minutes before I came into the podcast, which is why I was late to the podcast. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The truth comes out. So I'm looking, sorry to, to, to really get into the nitty gritty on this, like optimized for Mac. And there's some things that sort of make sense to me as a user. I'm like, yeah, you know, force touch compatible. Oh, that's cool. iCloud drive. Yeah. Retina UI. Cool. OpenGL. Mm, okay. <laughs> sure. Uh, core graphics. Mm, okay. <laughs> all, all, all right. Grand central dispatch. I'm like, all right. <laughs> 
I, I feel like that's gone too far, right? Like, I know too much about how the sausage is made, and I don't know that whether you use GCD or you use straight-up NS operation cues, if I really sort of care as a user, as long as it works really nice. <laughs> I feel that was uh, stretching a little bit. I feel like maybe they they had a design here for, like, hey, let's add all these, like, optimizations, and oops, it's an uneven number. No, we can't have an uneven number. We need to add right, a couple right. more <laughs> so it fills out It looks nice. Oh, look, it even has DCI P3 panel support, which we were talking about earlier. Apparently, I've created a couple of monsters over there. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Tell right. you to well, stop looking at it and go get it. No, it's, it's sixty nine ninety nine Canadian, even. Yeah. There you go. 50 That's what you say. $50, $50 US. That's, that's the term you US. use. Okay. $50. Couldn't remember. Yeah. Well, no, of course, no. $69.99 Canadian. Canadian. Right. Canadian. Yes, yeah, but when you exactly. say dollars, doesn't that denote USD? Well, we have Canadian dollars, and Australia oh, have... has dollars as well. So. Oh, see, I don't, I don't leave my house. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not very well traveled. Yeah, it, it probably would be a very how, how... you, you American centric. Uh, view to assume it is but then i'd say well considering that so many other economies are based on the u.s dollar it kind of seems like if you just say dollar it's u.s dollar and if you need to specify with anything before like canadian australian so forth then you specify where necessary i feel like it's 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 cleaner that way it feels very odd to say u.s dollar because nobody says that here Right, and and again, we, well, very U.S. centric. Well, yeah, yeah, but true. they say it backwards. They say fifty dollars U.S. That's what confused me. Why wouldn't you say fifty mm. USD? See, then you covered. Well, we could say we we could say fifty USD, but then yeah. Mm-hmm. Which which brings me to my <laughs> pick, which I just threw on the page here. Sorry, Jaime, I'm I'm jumping in here. Yeah, but go for it. Jaime posted Jaime posted something the other the other day, which was a little uh, series of YouTube videos, and I ended up watching them on my my fancy smancy smart TV here. But it's a history of paper money. Like, how did we go from trading goods to giving people pieces of paper? that have value. And, and in the sixth episode, you find that once they got away from the gold standard, the U S dollar became the standard measure for most money currencies around the world. Believe it or not. You cannot have this conversation with me right now because my tinfoil hat is not nearly on tight enough right now for this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure what that means, but anyway, it's a series of... You have to look at the real history of the United States dollar to find out exactly what I mean. I'll give you a tip. Federal Reserve, start there. Well, hang on. So I'm talking about my pick, which is the, uh, the YouTube series. So what are you talking about? The real history of the U.S. dollar? No, I can't talk I about it. this. Okay. Right. I'm just telling you. I feel you, like we need go- like some like dun 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 music right when Timmy <laughs> says that. <laughs> no, is there something just- I don't know about the American dollar? Like, is it like the the eye in the sky and the? Well, there you got you do have you do have the eye and the pyramid Illuminati confirmed and whatnot. But no, seriously, when all kidding aside, just do do a little Google check on the history of the Federal Reserve. And then you'll right, okay. And then wear your tinfoil hat because if you go down that path and you start getting into that weird part of YouTube, then that's where reality and truth kind of get a little confusing. Right, right, right. (laughs) 
No, he knows too much. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. So, so now do we have to pay somebody a lot of money because we just went dun dun dun? You have to. It's By the way, you know, <laughs> you know, it's, it's it's funny. You know something, Jaime, you, and you and Mark were talking a couple of weeks ago, and I don't know if it was in the out sh- after show or whatever about the three tones that are like um, some network, like NBC or something like that. The yeah, dun, apparently dun, that is trademark. Apparently that yeah. is. Say hi, <laughs> Let's, let's, yeah. let's get Intel suing us too. Dung, 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 dung. Is that what the <laughs> Pentium inside was? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Those are very. I mean, I immediately haven't seen an Intel commercial in a very long time that I can actually right. remember. But I absolutely remember the tone. And NBC's, I always remember the tone. So of course they trademarked it. Like it'd be wow. crazy not yeah. to. It sounds weird because, like, it's just three tones for the heaven six. Well, yeah, but it's very recognizable arrangement of tones. Yeah. Well, what I want to say, too, was uh, since I was on that thing about, uh, I was listening to that on, I think it's called Age of Persuasion, um, a guy named, um, oh, he's like the hockey player. Uh, I mean, I've forgotten his name now. Terry O'Reilly uh, has a show on CBC, um, and he's a marketing guy here in Toronto, and he does these amazing talks on, on that. And that's where he talked about that particular tone being copyrighted a couple of weeks ago. And he's a, It's a podcast. I'll put a link in the show notes. People should listen to it. It's pretty cool. All right, Jaime, the moment has come at last. What is your pick? My pick feels like it follows with the theme that we sort of accidentally had in the in the show today. Um, it's a tool called Zeppelin. It's at zeppelin.io. And it's a tool that right. I used recently on a project at work where you need to have a lot of fast coordination, really tight coordination with the design team. In this case, working on a visual refresh um, that we recently went through. And I don't know how it would have been possible to, to get what we got done without this tool. It, it's really nice. It integrates uh, very nicely with sketch, right? Like it'll produce, um, you know, different versions of things that you need for iOS and Android. Uh, but having things like the color palettes. So instead of like having to go bug somebody and say, Hey, what is this green? Is it CD two X five? No, it's, it's some other value. Like I don't have to guess I could see right in the palettes, what it is. And likewise, I can see alignments of things, right? So a lot of times you'll see like, oh, well, okay, that's that's great. I, I can see how this thing is anchored to this other thing, but, but what about this over here? Like, how does that align? Like, how far does that need to be? And you can see those alignments kind of like um, if you've ever seen people use Xscope, the, the Mac tool. So kind of shadow pick there. Xscope is also pretty good for this too, for the alignment stuff. Um, it'll give you sort of the red lines of like, oh, this is 52 points and uh, in width, and it's 10 points away from, uh, let's say, like the layout guide. Um, but you can also uh, communicate with folks on here, so you can leave notes like, hey, th- this alignment isn't going to work on the iPhone 4S. What should we do in that case? And it really, really helps because everybody sees it rather than it being like, you know, in a separate tool like Slack, for example. Um, which, funny enough, this actually does have Slack integration, so you can get updates in there if you, if you hook up the bot so you can say oh like alert somebody in this channel that you know somebody has gone and, and entered more information about this or they've added new screens or they addressed some sort of comments that you had so I, I found it really great um i know i've used sort of other methods um in other visual design refreshes in 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 the past and it definitely has not been as seamless and successful as uh, 
as this has been. I think this really saved a lot of heartache for, for everybody. There's like less round trip time of like, well, you know, let me output something from an artboard or, Oh, let me, the designer's not there. So not really sure. It's like, well, I can see what their design currently was. So I can actually look at it and purely understand it without any sort of intermediary in between. Yeah, have, have either of you used uh, Zeppelin before or similar tools? Well, you know what? I, I think I signed up for Zeppelin when it was just being announced and before it had rolled out into the beta program because um, it, it rings a bell. And I was looking at a lot of wireframing tools a couple of years ago when I was working on some projects that I had to get done pre-PDQ. Um, so it, it does look very familiar to me, but I think I, I, I think I didn't pull the trigger on it when it first came out. But So you, and you were using it with your team this week or...? Like cooperating uh, not, with your other members, or not? Not this week, but during like the holiday time frame. Uh, it looks like they launched their 1.0 in July of 2015. So yeah, uh, it seems yeah, like it sounds about right. Yeah, well, like, like a year or two ago that I heard about it, probably when they had the the beta launch back in right September October time frame of 2014. Right. Yeah, I, I do remember signing up for it. I'm just trying to find it. I probably do have still have an account, but. Uh... Yeah, but I thought it was only with Sketch because I mean that was the one thing that uh, that was the showstopper for me because I don't have I don't use Sketch right so so but are you so so coming back to so you you were able to go through a, a, a like a set of design set, setups for for building an app with this yeah so let's say like um, let's say you've got like an account screen it's like okay well this is moving here this is moving there and I'm looking at at the design you can say well hold on like if this is specified to be this many points tall always there's no way that all of this is going to fit on an iphone 4s and i was able to add that sort of comment and they're like oh yeah yeah and then the android folks came and said yeah we've got some smaller density devices that this will have a problem with too and so everybody could see that right like we we could have had like an altogether different kind of conversation but instead it's captured in the tool and then I got a notification on Slack that it had been addressed and I was able to just go pop right in. Oh, okay. There you go. So it's not an absolute number. It's more like, you know, 25% of the screen is this size. Right. So like, I felt like that really helped, um, fix problems before it can kind of be, you know, too much to deal with. Right. Cause you're, we're trying to do things on rather tight time frame, and And this really helps keep everybody like on the same page. Right. Sort of like, um, what's base campy kind of, collaboration right does it does it output code like i, I see here on the, the little movie they got on the their home page uh, sort of a swift or objective c and color palettes and that kind of stuff does it export all that kind of stuff for you to use in a product later or does it work the only thing i remember were colors and fonts that it that it does but um okay like i, I can see how that would make sense if you're like prototyping something but considering that i already had um, an architecture, uh, like a typesetter and a color palette object that dealt with all of that, the, that was less interesting because, uh, even though it will generate code, that's like, Oh, um, you know, we can use this with the RGB values or we can generate it with, uh, hex values, which shockingly to this day, uh, UI color does not support hex values, which, <laughs> which bothers me, right? Cause everybody, everybody either writes the code themselves to, to convert or they use like a little third party snippet or heaven help you a cocoa pod to uh to do that sort of thing in mm-hmm. this case i was already working within the framework of an existing app that that already dealt with the conversion between those so uh, that part wasn't necessary but yeah you, you could right instead of like 
oh man, all right, so I see that this is, you know, RGB value 7564, 151. How in the world am I going to turn that into, you know, UI color, color with RGB, and it's like a 0 to 1.0 sort of thing, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's, that's, that's painful. And, and this can generate the code for that, so you can get the little snippets. Oh, there you go. It's this. This is the color. Interesting tool. I'll have to take it out for a spin. That's Zeppelin without with one P. All right. I guess that's it for the week. What do you think? Yeah? I think so. All right. So, Jaime, if people want to find you on the interwebs, where would they look? They would go on to Twitter because I am at Dev of the Hair. And Tammy, if people want to find you on the interwebs? I'm usually on Twitter, Paradox927. Although I've been somewhat silent lately, which is a good thing, right? Hmm. It's is good it? for productivity, I, I think, to be silent on social media. It means that something yes. is, is brewing and percolating. Oh, there's brewing. All right. Hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. And, and I'm Tim Mitra, T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on the Twitter machine. That's the best way to get a hold of me. All right. And I guess we'll see you guys next week. See Bye. ya. Goodbye. And you just listen to the More Than Just Code podcast. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There you can find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the items that we talk about on the show as well as links to the apps on the App Store. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment on the website, and if you can, please write a review on iTunes. If you're listening on Overcast, go ahead and press the recommend button. It really helps others find out about the show. You can also follow us on Twitter. Once again, the podcast's Twitter account is at mtjc underscore podcast. If you'd like to support us, you can pledge any amount on patreon.com slash mtjc. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. No, I do have a problem, though. What's that? For some reason... Oh, wait. Okay. I fixed it. Never mind. (laughs) I was... No. My my problem was it was screaming at me and saying I only had like 400 meg free on my disc. And I was like, well, that's not right. But I I don't know. I I waved a magic... I know, right? I'm telling you, I just got this computer (laughs) back from Apple today and things are weird with it. Very, very weird. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's... So why, why would you send your Mac into Apple to get fixed? Like, what? what's the deal with that? Well, for Was one... Warranty I, or? Well, because... Well, I'm two hours away from any store in any direction, so I couldn't just yeah, walk it in. But sure. the problem with it was the... Um, it's a 13-inch MacBook Pro, and the reflective display stuff, whatever that's called, on the monitor screen right. kind of, like, rubbed off. And I don't even like people mm-hmm. touching my screen, so I couldn't deal with the tiny little marks that this issue was causing. And apparently it's a known issue. So when I called them up and said, hey, look, I got an issue, they were like, oh, no problem. Just send it in. I got to tell you, it took me longer to get the backup, move over to my 15-inch temporarily, get everything set up over there, than it took them to fix mm-hmm. this. I sent it out on Monday. It came back today. Today's Wednesday. 
Wow. Yeah, I know, right? And it's the same computer? It's the same computer. I mean, like I said, it's being a little weird, but that's just because I think I have other things going on with it. But uh, yeah, and it looks great. The display looks fantastic. They just replaced the display, probably. Weird. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So yay for Apple. I could bitch about them all I want, but in the end, you know, (laughs) I'm not going to use anything else. So does the whole top case look like it's been replaced? Like, does it look shiny and new and stuff? Or? Well, yeah, there's no cat prints on it. So. <laughs> <laughs> the cats have been licking at your screen, is what the problem is, right? I said, that was the first thing I said to my husband. I'm like, oh, look, there's no cat prints on the top. They really must have fixed it. Right. <laughs> That's the evidence. Yeah. Right. So, as you know, I moved on to the MacBook uh, Pro recently, right? And uh, I think I'm into my, into my second week on it. But for the first week, it was like I was constantly looking for adapters and dongles and trying to figure out how to transfer my files. Lately, I've just been using AirDrop to transfer from one Mac to the other, right? Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I, I, so I've, I've gone back to the Apple Store a couple of times. I got some of those Belkin Ethernet adapters finally and... Uh, you know, bought a. I had to buy a USB C to a Lightning cable f- to charge my my test phone at work and all that kind of stuff. So it's been a challenge, right? So, but I'm I'm really starting to love the the the, the touch bar. It's kind of it's interesting. I put I posted a somebody told me uh, one of the other guys has got uh, one of the other MacBooks and he says this chat the emoji thing is really cool, right? Well, what it is is if you if you're in a tool like uh, HipChat or something like that, um, and you hide the keyboard thing. Or the keyboard shortcuts, it, because it kind of does. You know how I, I mentioned before when you're doing um, when you're type when you're texting on your phone and it gives you the suggested words across the top to save mm-hmm. you having to type the whole word. Well, it does that in the touch bar too now, right? So if you're and it, sometimes you know you're just you're typing away and you have trouble spelling a word and it, you know you can see the word just sitting there in the thing and you just tap on it and it enters it into the text, right? But as well as that, if you switch over to the emoticon view, you get all the sort of frequently used emoticons. And that's the screenshot I put on Twitter, right? So it it is becoming, like, it is very much like, um, you know, if you've been using an iPhone for any length of time or even the iPad, like with the Playground, I think we talked about this with Playgrounds for iOS, where as you're coding, it actually gives you suggestions as to, how, as to what code to put in, right? Uh, just above the keyboard, right? The virtual keyboard, right? Um, and that's kind of sort of the role that the the touch bar is taking place of in in uh, your daily use, right? So, you know, every now and then you, you, your eye just catches some sort of shortcut, you know, that you could use at any point in time, right? So mm-hmm. I did download mm-hmm. the piano the other day and try that out too. <laughs> it's a little hard to hit the black keys, but... Right, because yeah. it must be tiny on that thing. Well, you kind of sort of have to... I found I have to sort of tilt my finger and come from the top down if you can imagine what i mean by that right so mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm. so so if you're if you're going to play something in the key of c you're fine but if you want to play anything you need a key you need the black keys for right yeah <laughs> but i haven't tried i haven't tried the doom game yet so it's, it's coming later